Let's take our Bibles this morning as we come to our time of worship through the study of the Word of God, return to our study of the last book of Scripture, the book of Revelation. Last week we were talking about Jesus Christ and His coming and what took place between the Father and the Son and all that happened for Christ to come and to be our Savior. And we went to Philippians chapter 2, and before that we were in, of course, Revelation. This morning I want to return our time to Revelation in our study there. We have just finished chapter 19, and chapter 19 closed with the the battle of Armageddon, a, a brief glimpse really at the the battle of Armageddon, the battle that ends the tribulation, the time when God intervenes once again uh, in, a, in a public way really, in a, in a worldwide cataclysmic way in human history through, as we read in, Revel- or in Matthew 24, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. In that war, the beast and the false prophet, as we have studied extensively in the previous chapters, who who led the armies against Christ, in that chapter they are destroyed. They are uh, cast into the everlasting fires of hell. Notice that in chapter 19 and verse 20, they are thrown alive into the lake of fire, that burns with brimstone. That's just the description of hell itself. And so in a chronological order of God's redemptive history, beyond the event of that final battle in the tribulation, beyond the defeat of the beast and the false prophet and the armies of the earth, there lies the one who has led all of them into the winepress of the fury of God Almighty. Beyond them lies Satan. And beginning in chapter 20 are the events associated with the earthly reign of Jesus Christ, that which we know as the millennial kingdom, and then beyond that is the eternal state or the establishment of the new heaven and new earth. So it is with these two uh, final events that Satan is fully and completely vanquished. In fact, if we look closely at these events, we can notice that God presents uh, these events to John in sequential order. We are seeing them as a series of scenes, if you will. If you want to just kind of get a, the, the final events of the book of Revelation in, in a package sense, this is the final scenes. The scenes are actually, uh, they, they began for us back in chapter 19. And if you notice, they are marked out for us by the words, I saw. Notice chapter 19, verse 11, and I saw heaven opened. And then, of course, down in verse 17, and I saw an angel standing in the sun. And then verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war. Remember, uh, in our last few times together in 
studying in Revelation, we gained an understanding of these first three scenes. Remember, we learned that in the first scene was just the picture of Christ's coming, the the sovereign ruler of all creation, the sovereign ruler who was coming to rule on earth, and that is none other than Jesus Christ, the one who is faithful and true. And he's coming not as Savior, he's coming as judge. He's coming to judge the earth. And then, of course, the second we saw was the miraculous gathering of all the carnivorous birds of heaven for the great feast of God that will feast upon all of the carnage that takes place in the, in the fell swoop of the word of Christ as he destroys the armies of the Antichrist. Then, of course, thirdly, we saw, or we were, really, a front row spectator as we looked at it, uh, to this slaughter of the armies of the earth that began in verse 19, and we went down through verse 21. Of course, in that slaughter, the false prophet and the beast, the puppets of Satan, were snatched up and cast alive into the lake of fire in verse 20, and the rest who were with them were killed with the sword which came out of the mouth of him who sat upon the horse. So Jesus Christ's word just simply lays waste to all the rest who do not follow him. So here, these scenes continue then all the way through into chapter 21. And the chronological outworking of these scenes has great importance for us. The reason I'm highlighting this is because for our understanding of the flow of Revelation and for our understanding, really, of the entire flow of all of Scripture, this chronological outworking in Revelation and these scenes has this great importance for us in our understanding of what is to come in the future. Notice chapter 1. I mean, in chapter 20, again, these scenes continuing, I'll just show you where they are. Chapter 20, verse 1, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven. There's the next scene, and we'll see this one this morning. Then verse 4, and I saw thrones, and they who sat upon them, the judgment was given to them. So that's the, the fifth scene. Remember, they began in chapter 19, verse 11. Chapter 4 of verse 20, that's the fifth scene in all of these. Then down in... Chapter 20 and verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, whose presence the earth and heaven fled away. And then verse 12, another scene, And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne. Then verse 21, verse 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And then the final scene, chapter 21, verse 22, and I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb, are its temple. And so all of these are the final scenes that that make up the chronology of what is taking place. And so as people who are interpreting what these things say, we cannot ignore the chronology of these events. To ignore the chronology of these events in our understanding of the book of Revelation and to ignore the plain reading of these passages, to do that leads to wrong conclusions 
concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ and concerning what follows. Remember, all of this fits into the category that we know called eschatology. This is where some of you will go to sleep. Please don't go to sleep. When I was in seminary, for whatever reason, however God wired me, eschatology is one of my favorite theological subjects. And it may simply be simply because oftentimes we just sit around and try to figure out when it's going to happen. And God said, don't do that. And so I don't want to figure out when it's happened. I just want to understand what's going to happen and, and have the right place and the right motivation as to why God told us this. So all of this fits into this category theologically called eschatology. Eschatology, the study of last things. That's, that's just the simple definition. Revelation is all about last things. It is the uncovering, the revealing of Jesus Christ in the future. And so we have been gaining understanding in our eschatology. And eschatology can be and is often very, very debated. No greater chapter is debated with more intensity than Revelation chapter 20. I was studying this and reading about it over the last couple of weeks, and I thought, man, how am I going to encapsulate what I need to say and what should be said in the short time that we have? I don't know. I still don't know how that's going to happen, but we're going to give it a shot. But anyway, this chapter is hotly debated. You say, why? Because this chapter introduces to us future events that are surrounding what is called the millennial reign of Christ. The millennial reign of Christ. Millennium or millennial is taken from a Latin term, not from a scriptural term, that means uh, a thousand. The Latin term mille, that just means one thousand. So the chapter speaks about a thousand-year reign of Christ. And depending on how you approach the Scriptures in your interpretive process, by way of your method of interpretation, you'll come up with different results as to what that reign looks like and what it actually means and what that reign looks like and means for all people. I don't want to bog us down with all the great details about the different views on this, but I I have to give us some of it so that we're not confused. Okay, For the three of you that are interested in this, I have to give it to you, all right? There are three primary interpretive views concerning the millennial reign of Christ, and I'm just going to try to give you the short version of all of these, all right? Two of them interpret the scriptures or look at the scriptures as being symbolic, especially this passage, okay? In other words, the, the words, when we read the words on the page, they don't mean exactly what they say they mean. There's more of a, an allegorical, spiritualized meaning behind what they say. So, so two, of the, two of the theological views take that approach to interpreting the Scriptures. The other one takes a more literal approach, giving the, giving the text uh, the room to say what the text says according to the chronology of Scripture. Okay? The flow of God's redemptive history as it's stated in the Scriptures. 
Now let me see if I can help us with all of this. And I'll say at the outset that we are and have been throughout our study of the book of Revelation. We have been taking all of what Revelation has told us in a literal, normal sense. Okay? So we, we do not fit into the first two that I'm going to give you. We fit into the final one. We have been taking the Scriptures according to their literal, normal sense and according to the chronological outflow. You've probably heard me say chronology a hundred times if you heard it once in our study. <clears throat> so when we think of the millennial reign of Christ, and we're going to get into the actual passage here in just a moment, there are three primary views when we think of the millennial reign of Christ. The first one is a view called amillennialism, or the amillennial view. Okay? Awe is just a, a letter before the word that negates the word. Okay, so amillennial means no millennium. Simple as that. No millennial. No millennium. No thousand-year reign. The amillennial view emphasizes the reality of symbolism in all of the prophecies concerning this event, all of the Old Testament prophecies and all anything else that's said, it's all <coughs> um, taken in a way that is symbolism. So it rejects any idea of a literal thousand-year reign of Christ. So when you notice in verse 2 that it says that this angel that we'll see in a minute who comes down and binds Satan for a thousand years, that thousand years doesn't mean a literal thousand years to an amillennial belief, to an amillennial viewpoint. <clears throat> so the amillennial view basically says there's no literal kingdom or really to be better and more fair to that view. They would say that, that all the kingdom there is is what we have now. In other words, we're in it. This, If you want to say it's a kingdom, we're in it, but it's not a thousand years. Why would they say that? Because they say Christ is ruling from the throne in heaven. And here would be some of the main points, all right? They would say Satan was defeated. He was bound uh, as a result of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So when it says here that he's bound, that just simply means he was bound when Christ died and rose again. The thousand years are not to be taken literally, they would say, but they are symbolic of a way of just simply describing the gospel age. An age of the gospel, the age of the church. So all the Old Testament prophecies uh, of the kingdom, of which there are hundreds, they would say the blessings that were given to Israel or pronounced for Israel in all of those Old Testament prophecies find their complete fulfillment in the church, in us. And so the return of Christ will be to the earth at the end of the church age and then that will simply be followed by the great white throne judgment, the judgment of sinners and the rewarding of saints. Now, there, within each view, there's all kinds of little variations within there, but that's the, that's the premise of the all-millennial view. Everything you have now is kingdom living. Okay? 
emphasis. A now kingdom, no no reign of Christ on earth. A second view is a view called post-millennialism. Post-millennialism. Post means after. Okay, after. So post-millennium has some of the same common features as with amillennialism when it comes to especially emphasizing the scriptures in their symbology in all the prophecies concerning the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But they deny any distinction between Israel and the church. So even all the way back in the Old Testament, there's no distinction between Israel and the church, and therefore they reject any thought of a rapture of the church. Amillennialism at least makes a distinction. So the amillennialist believes that we are in the kingdom now. The postmillennialist would believe that the church ushers in the kingdom through the gospel. In other words, we are the ones who bring the kingdom about. As we share the gospel with the world, the world gets better and better and better and better. That's what the postmillennialist would say. We bring about the kingdom. And so under both an all-mill view and a post-mill view, Israel was given the promises. Israel was given all the cursings of the promise, but all the blessings of the promise go to the church. So for those who believe in that view, the millennial reign of Christ is not, they say, to be understood as a literal period. It's simply as a term. Just a term describing the closing phase of the church age. Right before God introduces a new heaven and a new earth, as we will see in Revelation chapter 21. So the postmillennialist sees Christ and the church reigning in this spiritual age, or spiritually in this age, or in the end in the age to come, and that through the gospel the world becomes... Uh, a better place. Uh, they have a difficult time with that, though, when the times when, like, world wars happen and things like that, because during world wars and things like that, the world's in great turmoil, and the post-millennials kind of go into the go into hiding because their belief is everything's going to get better, get better. It is getting better. And yet when world wars come along, they have a hard time because people are going, Really? So the all-mill believes it's now. The post-mill says things will be better by the church. And then the final view is the view that we hold here. Why? Because we believe it allows Scripture to say what it says without the addition of any unnecessary spiritualization. That view is the pre-mill view or the pre-millennial view. Okay, that there's a tribulation pre to the millennial kingdom. We are pre-mill. This term simply describes the view and eschatology that Christ comes personally to the earth. He comes with his saints. He comes at the close of the tribulation period. And he comes in order to establish an actual literal earthly kingdom that he promised to Israel in the Old Testament and that kingdom will last on earth for 1,000 years. 
And all of this flows chronologically with how Revelation describes these events. This is something you must know. If you read the Scriptures in a chronological fashion as God has laid it out, there is only one view you will have at the end of that. And that is a premillennial view. You cannot read the Scriptures in a chronological fashion as God laid them out and come to the view of amillennialism or postmillennialism. It's impossible. You have to read it in its chronological fashion or it doesn't fit. So we believe that the millennial kingdom has its foundations in the promises of God to Israel through Abraham, through David, and that just as all the curses fell upon Israel in a literal way when they disobeyed God's covenant with them, so too all the promises are theirs in a physical reality as well. So we believe the kingdom will be literal on the earth, that it will be centered in Israel, that Jerusalem will be its capital, and that Christ's reign will encompass the whole earth from there, as Zechariah 9 and verse 10 indicates in his prophecy. We believe that all who enter into the millennial kingdom, all those who, who are saved in the tribulation, who weren't martyred for their faith, will enter into the millennial kingdom redeemed people. And that this kingdom will be established by the personal return of Christ in a literal way at the close of the tribulation. And that chronologically follows even how Revelation has laid it out and John sees it and he's writing it. Tribulation ends in Revelation chapter 19 and verse, uh, really in verse um, uh, right prior to, uh, in verse chapter 18 really. And after these things, heaven starts to sing, right? And the rejoice comes and Christ appears and Christ starts coming in verse 11. Right after that, you have the battle of Armageddon, the final thing. And after that, now you have this ushering in of the millennial kingdom. So we believe the kingdom is going to be ushered in by Christ. It will be a literal ushering in of the millennial kingdom. And it will last for a literal thousand years and its end will come as satan in his final rebellion is cast into hell along with all of those who follow him you say well how do you know that because revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 and following clearly says that the devil deceived who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever Verse 15, and if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he also is thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever and ever. So that wasn't too hard, was it? That's the three views. That's the the three views that are primarily taken and people see this text in and and why they get there. Postmillennia say the church... Uh, brings in the kingdom. The amillennialists say we're currently in the kingdom. And the premillennialist view is that Christ will establish his earthly kingdom as promised and it will last an actual 1,000 years. And we are looking at this 
with the interpretive lens that we have used from the beginning. We're taking it all in a literal, common, normal way that God has given us the language, that we're understanding it, and we're doing that through its chronology. So with all of that just as a background, let me read for us chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into the abyss, and shut and sealed it over him, so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. And I saw thrones. And they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So Christ has now, in the chronology of things, as God is unfolding it to the eyes of John, and he is being diligent to the task of writing every detail down. Christ, having now dispatched the beast and the false prophet to hell, now, according to the outflow of these events, begins to deal with Satan himself. And I want us to to just kind of walk through at least the first three verses this morning in our time we have left and look at these three things, the restraint and removal of Satan, those are the first two, and then third, the release of Satan. Just really quickly, those three things, the restraint, the removal, and the release. Notice, he says this, And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. You can stop right there for a moment. An angel from the opened heaven. Remember, I saw heaven open, verse 11. Of chapter 19. So an angel from the open heaven acting with all the authority of the throne of God now arrests Satan. Christ has already seized the false prophet and the the beast and by his uh, doing they have been cast alive, thrown out of the scene into the lake of fire. And now this angel is dispatched by Christ to arrest Satan. This angel is not Christ. In fact, we do not even know who this angel is by name. It doesn't even say to us. He is simply commissioned for a task. And the nature of his commission, according to what John sees here, is symbolized for us by a key and a chain. Notice, he has the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand, verse 1 says. 
We've seen this before, by the way, at least the abyss. Back in chapter 9, remember in chapter 9, the angel came down from heaven and he opened the abyss. He had the power or the commissioning of God to to not uh, cover or seal up the abyss. Now, in chapter 9, he was opening the abyss. And you remember what came out of the abyss was these locust-like looking animals or these creatures these are demon uh, 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 demons who come out in this kind of form and they are creatures who were given access by god to the earth and they were given access for one purpose and that was simply to torment men on the earth it was part of the curse of god as the the trumpets are being uh, or blown this was one of the the judgments of god came out of this abyss and now here in chapter 20 the abyss is being locked up again abyss just means bottomless pit that's a simple word this is not hell don't confuse yourself with that this is not hades or sheol those are not hell hades and sheol are just terms that that really simply mean life that's not on this side of death it's, it's the another world, the other side, uh, just terms for Hades and Shield. Hell is a whole other place. The abyss is this place. All these things were created by God. This is the abyss, the bottomless pit. It was a place created by God for one purpose. The purpose of the abyss is simply this, to imprison fallen angels. To imprison fallen angels. This is like, as I was thinking of this, I was thinking, oh, this is like heavenly Alcatraz. This is, this is uh, Rikers Island in New York. I mean, this is the notorious prison of God. The abyss. Place created by God for the purpose of imprisoning fallen angels. And some of those fallen angels, by the way, are there. Uh, until that's cast into hell, they, they they cannot come out. They weren't let out when it was open. Some of them were there and were let out to uh, torment men for five months in Revelation chapter 9. And some are frightened to even go there. And I'll show you that in just a moment. But this abyss will be the imprisonment for Satan for a time. Jude chapter, or in Jude verse five and following, it says it this way. Now I want you to remind, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that the Lord who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day, until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So there's a a sense in this is the abyss that Jude is describing in the angels. they're, They're held in chains until the great day of judgment, the day when Christ will cast all of that into the lake of fire. This is a place of dark, gloomy pain, if you will, or just badness and waits for the day of judgment. 
You remember back in Luke chapter 8 when Jesus Christ went over across the sea to the land of Gennesaret. And there was one there who was possessed by a legion of demons who mankind couldn't even restrain with the chains of men. He would bust out of the chains. He was a violent guy who would beat everybody up who came near him. And they tried to bind him, but they could not bind him. And Jesus comes over there, and the demons say to Jesus, We know who you are. Please don't send us to the abyss. They don't want to go to this place. Send us somewhere else, but not there. And, of course, we know the story. Jesus sends the demons into a herd of pigs. The pigs run down the hill into the water, and the story goes on. And Jesus, the name or the word of Christ and the story of Christ and the, the what happened goes to the whole surrounding area. So here in Revelation 20, this angel comes from heaven, and he is commissioned by the authority of heaven, and he has with him the instruments of imprisonment. So he's coming, notice, to restrain Satan. Notice verse 2. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. He's coming to restrain the, the kingpin. And notice here he's identified with four different names. Four different names. He is the dragon, he's the serpent, he's the devil, he's Satan. These are names the same four names uh, that we heard him be called back in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 when he was cast to earth. And I believe all of these names uh, identify, of course, Satan himself, but two identify particularly his character, and the other two are what he's called. Right? In other words, two reflect his personality, and the other two his personal names. I found it kind of interesting. Even Satan has two names. Right? You have a first name and a last name. I, I'm not saying this is his first and last name, but he has two names here. The text says that the angel, and you'll notice as we walk through this, there's five action words that are given here in how what the angel does with with Satan, uh, the angel, first of all, lays hold, notice, of the dragon. Lays hold. Dragon is one of those descriptive terms. His character, he is, he's cruel. A dragon is vicious. A dragon is cruel. A dragon uh, has no mercy. So Satan is just that. He, he's cruel in his character. He's vicious in his nature. He desires no good. He desires only destruction for those who, who follow him. He, he certainly appears as if he's an angel of light, but he wants nothing but destruction. All that follow him will end up in hell. And this angel lays hold of him. I love that. Lays hold. He's arrested. It's a surprise terminology. To his own surprise, he's arrested. That's the idea of laid hold. It's to seize without warning. Satan is seized without warning. It isn't as if he, he hears of the, the, 
the coming arresting officers. It's as if he's in there doing his business and the door breaks in by the angel and he is snatched up. The cruelty of the dragon is seized. And then he says, secondly, the serpent of old. The serpent of old. Another descriptive term. Describes his deception, doesn't it? When you think of the serpent of old, as John writes it here for us, there's one thing it brings to our mind. It it takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. The serpent who deceived our first parents. He's the father of lies. That too is seized. It's snatched up without warning. Then John says, who is the devil? There's the first name, the diabolos. He is the devil. That's what he's called. He's the tempter of man. He's the one who spins off the systems of the world that tempt man in their fallenness. And that too, John says, is seized. It's laid hold of without warning. So the viciousness and all that he does by way of his viciousness is laid hold of. The deceptiveness of Satan is laid hold of. The the devil himself, the tempter himself, is laid hold of. And then last, Satan. Satan. The declared enemy of Christ and his people. This is why it doesn't make any sense for me when in eschatology, some of those views say that, that things will get better. The only way things will get better is if Satan is bound. And if Satan is bound, then things will be categorically better. And yet, Satan is still deceiving men. Satan still roams the earth as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. How can he be bound? So this has to be a future time. By the way, his name is the same no matter what language, uh, biblical language you go to. It's the same in Hebrew as it is in Greek. The Greeks just took the Hebrew name of Satan and transliterated it. And we took the name of Satan in Greek and transliterated it in English. It's always Satan. It means he's the accuser. That's, that's what his name means, accuser. The one who is vicious, the one who... Uh, deceives, the one who spins lies all the time, the one who has brought death into the world. He opposed God at the very beginning, and he is still opposing God and his people today. In fact, had he been allowed by God, who is overall, he would have destroyed Job. But God said, no, you can't take his life, but you can do this. See, he tried to win the battle over Jesus Christ in the temptation of Christ when he was out in the wilderness for 40 days. Satan tried to win over him. And he's the one who lies behind every evil our world has ever known or will know. God is not the author of evil. That makes things getting better and better and better and better today nonsense. Because our world is filled with evil. So God here sends his angel from heaven to seize the one who is behind it all and to bind him for, verse 2, a thousand years. That's the length of Christ's kingdom. There's no 
reason to take it any other way. Satan's initial imprisonment is for a thousand years. I don't know if you noticed this when I was just reading the first six verses. It's mentioned in just those first seven verses. If you go to the next verse even, it's mentioned again. It's mentioned six times. Thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. And every time it is referring to an actual period of time. You say, well, why do you say that? Because when it comes to interpreting the Scriptures, you have to have clear indications for taking it some other way. And there are no clear interpretive indicators here in the text to direct us to take it any other way than actually as a thousand years. You've heard me say this before. Maybe you want to write this down somewhere in your notes as an interpretive principle. When the plain sense makes sense, Seek no other sense, lest you seek nonsense. The plain sense makes sense. In fact, to think of it any other way makes no sense. So there is nothing here in this prophetic literature that would indicate to us that we should take it in some kind of spiritualized way. That it just simply means a a lengthy period of time. And so we, just as we have done through all of our study, unless it indicates otherwise, we just take this for what it says. Here, that's a thousand years. Satan will be bound by God in the abyss for a thousand years. So for the entire time Christ rules on the earth, Satan will be bound. He'll be locked up. Now if you think about that, that means that there will be some dramatic changes upon the earth. There has already been cataclysmic changes just through the judgments of God in the tribulation. And now people are scrambling for for any kind of means to just survive. And now Satan is bound. There's going to be even more cataclysmic changes. Christ is ruling as king. And the prince of the power of the air is locked up in God's prison. There will be massive differences than there is from now. No more will Satan establish a world system. He can't. He's not like prisoners today who seem to have some kind of access to the outside world and can spin their own little cartels, if you will, out, out, outside the gates of the prison. That's not like the abyss. Satan will not be able to establish any kind of world system. You say, well, does that mean there won't be any sin? No. No. Why? Because you don't need Satan to sin. You don't need him to sin, right? Sin comes by the flesh. Sin comes by the flesh. Each and every one of us, even prior to knowing Christ, and even after knowing Christ, have enough sin in us to condemn the entire world to hell forever. Were it not for Christ and his shed blood and our faith in Christ, we would have no hope. Sin is in the flesh. Satan cannot get into your mind. He cannot make you sin. Satan just entices an environment that is attractive to the flesh. When you remove that, 
When you remove the enticements, then the flesh is not going to be attracted in the same way or to those same things. Sin's still there. But even the unglorified redeemed still sin. Right? Everybody here who knows Jesus Christ by faith, you ever sin? Yeah. Why? Because you're unglorified. One day, you'll be sinless, you'll be like Christ, and you'll be glorified in a perfect body. But now you know Christ, you have the internal reality of Christ living in you, and you have the power over sin by the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in you. And when you submit to the Word of God and walk by faith, guess what you're doing? Walking in perfect holiness. But we still sin. Why? Because we choose to follow after the things of the flesh. Righteousness and peace and justice will rule the earth in the day when Christ reigns for a thousand years. And yet, listen, the strength of sin will show its full self at the end. Say, really? Yeah. Say, how so? Because even under the rule of Christ in person, even under the rule of Christ as he's on the throne on earth in person, Guess what? Some will still not believe. You say, really? Yeah, look at chapter 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. Those which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, when we get there, you'll understand, those are just terms for for the people of the earth. And what's he doing? Gathering them together for war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Wow. Under the thousand year reign of Christ, all that enter into the thousand year reign are redeemed, and then they begin to procreate, they begin to have children as redeemed people. Christ is ruling, and some of those children will not believe, they will go on to procreate, and the thousand years the earth will be repopulated after the devastation of the tribulation, and even under Christ's rule, not all will believe. And when Satan's released, he's going to deceive a number that's like the sand of the seashore. That's a lot of people. Jeremiah says the heart of man is deceitful and wicked above all else. The unredeemed heart only does what is evil. Unless the heart of sin is killed through faith in Christ, guess what? It will never die. Unless the heart of sin is killed through faith in Christ, it will never die, and it will continue to hate God forever and ever and ever and ever in the gates of hell. So verse 3 says, Satan will be bound, it will throw him into the abyss, and he will shut it and seal it over him. Why? So that he should not deceive the nations any longer. 
You see, the reason why God is removing him for a time is, is, I believe, to simply show the reality of his grace and his mercy to fulfill his promises to Israel to have a kingdom and to have a king on the throne who will reign, who is reigning and who will continue to reign forever and ever and ever according to the line of David as he promised. And he is casting out Satan for a time so that the nations will no longer be deceived by him. Guess what, on that day of judgment, on that final day of judgment, no one will ever be able to say, but listen, Satan made me do it. Ever. Could you imagine someone saying that who lives through the millennial reign of Christ, who doesn't believe in Christ, who follows the deception of Satan standing at the judgment seat and saying to Christ himself, I'm not at fault for this. Christ says, really, who is then? You you can't even blame it on Satan anymore. He was in prison. You are at fault. You are guilty. His deception will end for a time. And this earth will be ruled by the righteousness of Christ. So Satan is restrained by the angel. He is removed by the angel so that he might not deceive. And then lastly, he's going to be released. Notice verse 3. Right? He's removed for a thousand years so that he will not deceive the nations until that thousand years is completed after these things. He must be released for a short time. After that. That's a, that's a chronological term. That, that means after this event comes this event. That's, that's chronology. There's, there's nothing more startling than the words of this final phrase in verse 3. Satan is restrained by this angel. He is removed by this angel. And now he must be released. In the divine redemptive plan of God, as God uh, carries out his plan throughout the ages in time for his full glory and for his full exaltation, he must release for one last time the great deceiver. Seems unfathomable, really. Why couldn't he just stay in the abyss? I don't know. All, all I know is this. The abyss is not hell, and Satan's going to spend eternity in hell. The specific reason that he is released, we're not told. Except that when he does come out, he'll always do what he's always done. He will deceive the nations, verse 8 says. When Satan was cast out of heaven to the earth in the midpoint of the tribulation, you remember back in uh, chapter 12, remember Michael the archangel came down and, and, and they had a war between the demons and the good angels and Michael, they prevailed and cast Satan out of heaven to the earth. 
It says there in Revelation chapter 12 that Satan knew he only had a short time. And at that point in the chronology of God's unfolding of his redemptive plan in the tribulation, uh, in his rage, in Satan's rage, he set out in that short time to pursue and to persecute the nation of Israel. Because remember, the tribulation is about drawing Israel back to himself. He, he wants to destroy Israel. If he can destroy Israel, he can destroy the promises of God. If he can destroy the promises of God, then God is not valid. So he pursued Israel, and that time was limited to three and a half years. Remember, midpoint of the tribulation to the end, three and a half years, total time period, seven years. And now, here in Revelation chapter 20, he will be released again, and this time it is two for a short time. But we're not told here how short that time is. <clears throat> you say, well, how long is it? I, uh, the text doesn't tell us how long it is, but it certainly will be long enough or, or short enough, if we use the words of, of Scripture here, it will be short enough to deceive many, right? He will deceive the nations. So ask yourself, how long does it take to be deceived? How long does it take for someone to be deceived who has been following after their own heart for a long time? How long does it take for someone to fall who has been falling already? You spend, a, 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 you know, people aren't going to live like we live today, 120 years or so is the, the length of time, if you will, or even less than that in our day and age. Yet in the thousand-year reign of Christ, people will live for a long time. You live for a long time, hundreds of years in your sin, following after your own deception. It's not going to take you very long to follow after the deceiver. You're already there. I don't think it needs to be a long time. I don't think it needs to be years. I don't even think it needs to be necessarily days. He will come out. They will see him as their great Savior, and they will follow. That's the point. How long is it going to take for them to be deceived? I don't know. But even today, it seems that people are duped pretty quickly. People buy off on nonsense all the time, even in the Christian realm. Somebody comes down the line and says, oh, I finally found the answer to such and such. And you go, oh, how many people are following that guy? Really? That's not what it says here? I mean, how often do we see what I call bandwagon Christianity? You know, people jumping on this bandwagon, jumping on this band, going over here, following this, following that. Every wind of doctrine that seems to come down the road, they're all following after, and it seems like it just grows and grows and grows and grows. doesn't take long to be duped if you're following after that already. If you're not careful. You say, who's being duped? When, when Satan's released, who's going to be duped? Those who don't believe upon him in the millennium. That's who's duped. Those born to believers who were part of the repopulation of the earth under the reign of Christ. They love their own sin. That's who's going to be duped. Those who have bought off on their own sin. And there will be people in that kingdom from every tribe, every tongue, every nation... They'll all be part of that kingdom. God has his believers throughout the kingdom. 
All the earth is going to multiply rapidly. When Satan's released, the onslaught of deception is going to come like a tsunami. Those who love their sin are going to follow Satan to the final gathering of the wicked against Christ. You say, that surprises me. Well, don't be so surprised at the rejection. Listen, they rejected Christ when he came the first time. Christ told them he was going to come. He came, and they rejected Christ. He was here three and a half years, three years, and they killed, or 33 years, they killed Christ. So man rejected Christ when he came the first time. It shouldn't surprise us that man's going to reject Christ the second time, even though Satan is bound. Why? Because that's the wickedness of sin. That's what sin does. Sin unrestrained and unheld back by the, the reality of the Holy Spirit indwelling someone by faith in Christ runs rampant. So John says here, Satan is going to be restrained. Satan is going to be removed. And then Satan's going to be released for final destruction. But listen, he's not bound now. He's not bound now. He's not in prison now, and we're not unaware of his schemes. Why? Because we have the Word of God. We know what he's like. We know how he appears. We know how he comes. And so we preach and we teach. We tell others about Jesus Christ. Why? So that they might believe now. Now. You see, that's our great desire. That's our great hope. That's why God told us this, so that we would be motivated to say to others, listen, you don't have till tomorrow. There are no tomorrows. Today is the day of salvation. That's our hope. That's our faith. And we'll get more next time. We'll get more of this next time as the next scene unfolds for us and John writes it down. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you have shown us in a logical way what your future is to be. We today sit here as those who have been graciously grafted in. Certainly we have the benefit of all the spiritual blessings that uh, have been given and promised because we are your children. But we believe you still have a place for your chosen people, Israel. That one day you will reestablish them <clears throat> and that you will save those you've chosen. Lord, we're grateful that your word shows us how your redemptive plan is being carried out. Help us to be diligent in these things in sharing the gospel. Help us to know what we believe and know why we believe it so that we can be clear in the gospel. Help us to always be willing 
to gain understanding in these things for your glory. Because of your Son, the price you paid for our sin. In whose name we pray. Amen.